This is Parallel Lines. It is indeed. Well, I think that's what we're calling it anyway. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We're going to see how it goes. This is a pilot and there's all good pilots. Feedback is welcome. Feedback's welcome as long as it's uh, constructive or complimentary. Otherwise, we might not be so interested. Yeah. This is... Tony Miles, the wonderful journalist of railway publications and oft uh, seen presenting things to the general public on the BBC, uh, often not seen, but heard on the radio, explaining railway concepts. You've got the gig now, though, haven't you, as well? I have, indeed. So, uh, yeah. So who am I then, Tony? Yeah, Anna-Jane Hunter. You've had so many jobs in railways that you're kind of like that for people who've watched Gavin and Stacey and Nessa seems to have had more jobs than she can possibly have existed for when you started telling me about everything you've done in your career it's one of those where you think how can she have packed it in because she's still only about 21 but Tony mentioned this to me the other day that oh I remember the first time I met you and I and I and I thought you were like Nessa out of Gavin and Stacey and I almost considered slapping him because I'm pretty sure that's not complimentary in lots of different ways not that I don't love Ruth Jones she's a great actor I was wondering where the compliment lay um but uh yeah I, I can only assume that I, I must have looked a lot younger than my years that day it must have been a good hair day and um, we were going singing we, we, we've done choir stuff together apart from railways do you you've worked for train operating companies and network operating companies if we don't mention the name you've worked for network rail you've worked for tox you've, you've been involved in bidding you've been involved uh-huh. in what areas have you dabbled in over your years well up until this point i think i'm still legitimately able to say that i'm one of the few people aged 40 um who has worked for both a uk operating company and network rail because that's a little bit unusual for people my age so back in the days before privatisation, that was more common, although not as common as people might like to think. So I started my career in Network Rail as a graduate trainee, as many people do. And also, as many people do, I intended on only staying for a little while because actually I had a, a career in mind pre-railway. And so up until about two years in, I was still applying for other jobs in the law, as it happens. And that didn't work out. So I stayed. Turned out I quite like the railway. Uh, I should do because I'm third generation railway. Ah. So why it was a surprise, I don't know. So I did that for a few years and we'll get into various things I did there. And then I worked for train operating companies. Yeah, doing a bit of bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of bidding and a bit of mobilisation of franchises and that kind of thing. And then I went back to Network Rail for the second time of asking, which was fun for there's, a few years. There's not many people brave enough to do that. Well, there's not many people brave enough to find the door to get out in the first place. So I found the door to get out and then I found the door to get in again, which is um, quite unusual, I think. Uh, Stayed there for a little bit and then during the pandemic, actually, went independent. So I'm I'm a consultant now. I say independent. I work as part of a teeny tiny partnership of six others and me. So, yeah, we do lots of different things in the world of operations consultancy and it's great fun. The important thing to note here is that I work for a lot of publishers and other businesses as well and Anna Jane works for a consultancy but our opinions our views the jokes we might make in these podcasts <laughs> are entirely our own they don't represent the opinions of those who employ us it's very important to say that because both of our um, current professions rely upon us um, working with people across the industry and we do rely on a certain amount of trust um, from the people who pay our wages directly or otherwise so yes we will try and keep this light-hearted it's our intention to keep this very light-hearted but hopefully still respectful and not divulging secrets that would be detrimental to anybody's career i hope but least of all ours absolutely and and we're here partly because a we do love the railways 
even though times are quite frightening in a way at the moment as to the future of the railways, and mm. we'll get onto that over the next however many times we do this. But we're here because we care. We're here also because we want to try and explain in, in a, a light way, but we're hoping we're going to get people along to talk to us who, who will help us to help people listening to this to understand things. So hopefully some of the why on earth is it like this we can answer and that will be the thing that we want feedback on is what do you, what do you want to know? What do you want us to find people to talk about? And I suppose that is why we're here, isn't it? Because um, one of the things that I found when I left the employment, the direct employment of the railway, is that you do have a little bit more license to talk about things more openly. So some of the media coverage I've been able to do in the last few years, I've really enjoyed doing that. And the feedback I've had is that apparently in my weird little sort of Geordie way I can explain things in a simple way that people find accessible so let's try and use the fact that I'm rent a gob and that you understand a lot about the railway even if I don't uh, we can between us try and explain some things that people are curious about or would like to know a bit more about um, and yeah hopefully have a bit of fun doing it yeah shall and we yes and ditto I get the same sort of questions we, we, we actually had to do um we were both on radio four it was about a year we ago in the same interview and uh, they said oh you afterwards you harmonized really well together but but we, we'd had about an hour on the phone chatting about what we we're going to say beforehand and they didn't we, know, so we yes, conspired so. <laughs> and of course we we harmonize very well singing together in the choir don't we Tony so it worked but um yeah it's a great pleasure to do stuff like that. We're total radio geeks, aren't we? We, we both love Radio 4 massively too or, much. Or 5 Live, sorry, and 5 Live. And local radio, because it's, it's having as hard a time as railways at the moment. But I, I talk to a lot of local radio stations and there's amazing, a lot of local radio presenters go to work by train. Which, oh, is, really? which is one of those things. So quite often when they're warming me up for, before an interview, they say, is my train home going to be running all right tonight? <laughs> or, ah. When there are strikes on, will I be able to get to work? And so things target like that. audience, so, local radio pre- yeah. presenters. Excellent. So I am third generation railway. So my dad is a retired railway officer. And so he understands a lot of what I'm talking about on the telly. But, but the other thing is that I'm married to a current railway officer. So full disclosure, my husband is... Um, a director of a train operating company whose name we shall not mention. He doesn't have the same surname as me, but anyone who knows will know who he is. So or if, I, um, or if they read private, or eye. if they read private eye, they'll know. Yeah, because we had the pleasure <laughs> of being mentioned in private eye when somebody thought it was hilarious that I was um, referred to as an independent railway expert by the BBC, which I then chastised them for referring to me. Um, in that way because I don't actually like being referred to as an expert I think that's a bit much isn't it it's a bit heavy-handed and it it, it conveys a sense of responsibility that I have to you know be an expert which I don't intend to hold myself out to be but but um, yeah when I'm speaking about railway matters in the media right um, it's about people who don't understand it isn't it and about or people who just understand it less because you know what the railway is massive and it's coming back to that word expert it's pretty hard to be an expert in everything in the railway there's loads of people who are really really knowledgeable in a narrow relatively narrow field but you know they might be an expert in signaling technology but they don't really know anything about rolling stock or they wouldn't know how to dispatch a train they just know how to build one or you know the list goes on so i think we can all learn something or learn to appreciate a different part of the railway that we perhaps don't know as much about before we move on to today's today's specialist subject, but before we move on to it, what's your first memory of sort of encountering the railways? And was it through you, your family? Was it your dad taking you on a train wow. saying, Anna Jane, look at this, this is a... I can't remember a time without 
trains in my life. That makes me sound like a right geek, doesn't it? Like a proper railway geek. But my first proper railway memory, anyone who's worked closely with me will know I have a soft spot for train maintenance depots, which is because my first proper railway memory was my dad taking us to Heaton Depot because he was on call one Saturday night. And I remember being taken to Heaton Depot in my pyjamas and walking through the depot with... And this doesn't really translate on radio because you can't see what I'm doing, but my dad walked along with my with his hand over my eyes so that I couldn't see the girly calendars uh-huh. on the wall of the depot. And we were going to turn the isolation off or on. I don't actually remember which it was, but I do remember it involving an extremely long, large plastic pole. And that's my first railway memory, which is a bit <laughs> random. But um, And what's your earliest railway memory? Well, my very earliest... Obviously not from a railway family, but we used to go to Devon to Dawlish. So I can remember a, the trains on the seafront at Dawlish. Uh, but I can also remember being taken on a train journey while I was there and going into the, the toilet on it. And there was a hole in the floor where something had been removed and you could see the track oh, wow. through the hole. It probably wouldn't have quite got a football through it, but it was quite a big hole. And that is my first memory of looking, looking through this hole in the floor and thinking, <laughs> you can see the track. So today we do want to talk about trains. We want to talk about something in particular. Trains. And so we do have to go and locate our guest. He's arriving. He has arrived. He has arrived. To get out the door. So, for those of you who may have guessed that it was my aforementioned husband, you would be wrong. It's not. We have our esteemed colleague and very good friend of mine, Mr. Robin Davis. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for joining us for this pilot episode. We we thought we'd start off with somebody who is a, a good friend of both of ours and and also very knowledgeable. So. You've been on the railway how long now, Robin? Are you even prepared to share that? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I'm now doing that thing where I just say to people, I'm just very old, very old. You're not, so. you're not very old, you're just very yeah, experienced. experienced. Yes, so I think I'm now in, I think it's year 35 wow. since I joined the railway. What did you start as? What got you into the railway? Yeah, what, what did I want to be when I grew yeah, up? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so I joined the a British Rail, so for those people who may remember that. Uh, and then I joined as a, as a BR Ops Management graduate. See, that was the previous scheme where yeah. they got a. We're about to hear about the wonderful experience that Robin had as an yeah. ops trainee. For yeah. So, what sort of things did they make you do on that uh, on your graduate training? So range? we so we did the block. So I still remember the block. So signalling, because um, my first job then after I came off the scheme was uh, a first responder in the ops. So a mobile operations. Like a mom now. A mom. Yeah, yeah. Be a mom yeah. today. Um, so I've got a bit of a signalling background. Uh, but in the scheme, we did all sorts of things few stories so we we spent some time with freight my entire railway career has been in high speed intercity but they send you into all sorts of places so yeah. we did a week a week with freight so I sat in at the end you do a presentation so I and we we were in the steels business and I presented to that and I said that I never if I wanted to go and work in freight because I my degree is in transport I would have gone into logistics earned twice as much money so <laughs> That yeah. was the end of my future career in, <laughs> in the freight world on the railway. Then you, as you just said, you've ended up in high-speed passenger um, yeah. rail rather than, than freight, thank goodness, because I, I don't think they were ready for you, were they? <laughs> and what sorts of things have you been up to? So you, you special, in my mind, Robin, you are 
a Japanese train man. But that's oh. not all you've done, is it? No, so that's no. in the time that I've known you, that's predominantly what you've been involved in, isn't it? Is the introduction of some lovely Japanese trains. Well, but I know you did some many other things before that, didn't you? Well, just on that point, this is I'm now say where I'm in um, at the moment, but I'm on my eighth new trains project. Wow. And I don't differentiate. So I've worked with the Japanese, the Italians, the Spanish, the Basque, the Czechs, the Germans, Swiss, the Finnish. You know, so, so I'm pigeonholing you. So, yeah. Unnecessarily. So, indeed, yeah. indeed. So go back to that 35 years. I call it my last proper job uh, <laughs> was uh, when I was um, in one of the fifth, I did five of the 57 varieties of East Coast. Uh, so I was the head of operations at East Coast. And at that time, the structure was a production director. So there was a head of ops and mm. a head of... So to different models, it might be an ops director and a fleet director. So I was the head of ops and I had 350 drivers, 220 guards, the control, train planning, performance, track access. So that was that was sort of my world yeah. as before I got into... Well, I started in projects. Uh, I, I, I called it when my first proper one was the Eurostars on Virginia on, on, on the East Coast, yeah. the White Rose Project. White Rose, yeah. I tend to have start a project and finish it. So there I actually, in 1999, first we did a first run to, to York with a white set and I actually, we did the last train. So I actually did nearly six All years. All the way through. All oh, yeah. the way through and I tend, to, I tend to do that. So came off the grad scheme, first responder, a little bit in station management, went into safety Occupational health, then op safety, and then that was round about the time of privatisation, uh, and I was in op safety, and I transited it into what was into City East Coast, that then became GNR. Can I just ask you about privatisation, then, Robin? Do you yep. a colleague of mine in the in the partnership that I work always tells the story of privatisation that operations was the only bit of the railway where they cut a line down the middle of it. A lot of the rest of yep. it, it was obvious which way it would go. You know. Yep. Rolling stock would go one way, you know, the engineers would go in a particular direction, the financial people would go this way. It was quite it was quite obvious which way it would go. But operations, they drew a sort of an artificial line down the middle when they privatised it, to the point where you sort of have people who think of stations as being on one side and, you know, the, the trains that operate through the station being on another side of mm-hmm. the industry. So, you know, the, the talks and, and network rail in some cases. So do you remember, did you have to choose which yes. side? Yes. Do you remember choosing? So I, at, at that time, I was in the safety department. Yeah. So although sectorisation had come in, so I was in Intercity, East Coast, the regional operations manager for Eastern Region, God, <laughs> Bill Robinson, and he was, and it was amazing to what, what I learned. And one, the safety department, you were either going to go into what was rail track yeah. or... Yeah, because regional operation, operations covered signalers, drivers, air inspectors, all that carry on. So, and people were filling in their preference form. About, Simple as that. It was, State your choice. State your choice. You may get it. Right. You may not. Oh. And it was interesting that what people had different views at the time. What they because the most important thing that people wanted was, am I going to have a job? Am I going to have a job? And what happens to my pension? I would imagine would have been two of the big questions. Yeah, there were people who, you know, which did they think was the Mm. safest bet? There might be different now where people might go, where does opportunity arise? Where does excitement arise? Um, Because I think actually that's what, I don't think there was a great deal of that in British Rail. But now, since then, there's Mm. definitely, and there's certainly the stuff I've done, so tell us about some of the exciting things you've done, because that, that's all interesting. Yes. But it's not exciting, is it? No. I mean, some of the things you've done have been 
genuinely really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I got to meet the Queen and uh, I got to meet uh, Prince Philip. They came to relaunch the, the 225. They're still running on East Coast, the Mallard Project. And so we were the operating and the engineers. So that was focused on a bit sexist, but focused on, on Prince Philip. And he was, he's, he was infamous for his what might people might call his gaffes or his stories. So, so at the time, so Prince Philip, and you get introduced, and he says, oh, what do you do, young man? And I says, oh, I'm the, he- I'm the head of planning and performance. And he went, oh, you don't do a very good job, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was, I have to be honest, that's, I love that story. So <laughs> yeah. well, he, was, he was really interested and very erudite, and it was a real pleasure to, to, to meet him. So that's, that's, that's that. I've had some not such a good time. So somebody said, so... So East Coast has unfortunately had three of the of some of the terrible train crashes, yeah. and I'm involved in two. Um, and actually, I was supposed to be on the train at Heck. Instead, I had the joy of standing in a field, looking at that on that horrible February morning with the snow falling. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was a bit like when I was a mum. I had I had one fatality I had dealt with, and mm. that's horrific but it was you you deal with it and the adrenaline's going and it's only afterwards things become people and some of that experience has led into some of the stuff I do in new train so a little example of that the leading vehicle was flat packed and that's where all the emergency equipment was right and now I advocate that we spread emergency equipment down trains. That's not how we do yeah, it now. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's how yeah. we do it. And, and the railway's full of examples like that, isn't it? Where, sadly, um, I, I often say this about the rule book, some of the, some of the rules that are in there, most of the rules, in fact, that are in there, are because somebody did something or something happened yeah. that led to a negative outcome that usually led to something quite unsafe or, in some cases, tragic. Yeah. And, and we learn the, from it, don't we? Yeah, but, but also I think there's, there's a challenge in the industry because there's... I'm now that era where that, that sort of corporate memory, that vertical integration, the why, why yeah. is it, why is that rule? Because a lot of standards, and I, I deal with in Ukraine, so we deal with lots of standards and the latest standards, and a lot of those things have got less and less prescriptive. Yeah. And so you're down to in safety management, quite rightly, risk assessment, all that. But sometimes that people either specify train procurement or manufacture trains, just look at the standard rather than the... What does that mean? So again, why is it like yeah. that? And if you take, if you want anybody looks up the emergency equipment standard on on the RIS, it's quite light, but because it basically says you should risk assess your operation. Yeah. Um, so a little simple example: fire extinguishers. Fire extinguishers are not mandatory on trains. To some trains. Wow. But when was the last time you saw a fire extinguisher on a tube train? Just you know, I've never thought about it, but now that you mention it, I don't believe. Yeah. I have. So similar operating environment because there. That's a weapon, potentially. Ah, yeah. okay, so balance of risk. Balance it's of actually risk. riskier yeah. to have it than and to also, not. And okay. also, on um, um, our latest project, where there was a, it's a blur between mandated, there's a very strong guidance, but you have to risk assess. It says if you this type of thing... you just, So we were going to end up with double the number of extensions on a previous Hitachi product that I worked on. But we, what we did, and we argued it along Northern Train, five standards, just like your sofas, just like your bedding, Compared, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. So if you take a sofa from the 1980s to a sofa today, the fire standard is a quantum difference. So this was actually saying, actually, what's and today, since smoking was made illegal, the causes are either an electrical fault causing a fire, and therefore, but you design trains to be as safe as possible, yeah. and, that, and they get maintained, blah blah blah. Unfortunately, arson. Sure. Yeah. yeah, always a possibility. Yeah, or somebody having a cheeky tab in a in the toilet. In the toilet. So, but yeah. we've all been on a train where that's happened. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. but that's yeah. why we have smoke detectors in toilets. So. Mm. so let's 
continue the conversation about trains then that's why why we invited you on robin we want our podcast to have subject matter experts to share their knowledge yeah. a little bit um but we don't want to get too technical but we, we do want to talk about seats on trains seats seats, seats. it's the oh. most important bit of the train for most of our passengers yeah. isn't it you travel on the train you want to have a seat and ideally get a seat. like it to be comfortable well, yeah. number one is actually to get a seat indeed and that's ultimately trains are just a big metal can and you bundle a whole sort of stuff inside it so some seats space for luggage space for bikes space for toilets maybe some catering Space for buggies, space for people in wheelchairs, all that stuff. And all of those are competing for the space because the, the box is the size the box is. The, the Jubilee Bank Holiday 2022, the, the Queen's thing, I was asked to take photographs on the charter train that went from Crewe to Windsor for Railway Benefit Fund. But it was a Mark One set for those who remember back that far. And they were first class seats. But there were people getting on it who'd never been on a train yeah. for years. And they were sitting down on these sofas, know, sofas really. Quilted sofas yes. on a train. And they were sinking it. And they were saying things like, they must have specially made it for these train stuff. And I was talking to a few and I said, no, th- this is this is what you got in 1950s, whatever, when they were, Mark 1s were designed. This is what a normal first class coach looked like. And if you nip down to the second class as it was when they were built, as a standard class, this, this is what they were built like. This is what you got then. So... Whatever you got, th- these weren't built specially because it's grand day out and you're having a nice civil service meal. This is this was the norm, so that is why one of the reasons why people say, "But why aren't they like that yeah, anymore?" So absolutely. there's a bit of context to our discussion here that gradually through the years, things have changed, and but you, you make know. an interesting point there about you've come to about being first and then in standard. I actually went to the railway, National Railway Museum not that long ago. Um, a friend of mine came and he has a six-year-old daughter she was very excited but actually it was the real reason they wanted to go to railway. you wanted it to was go his well. it was his so yeah. and in there you there's uh, George Stevenson's rocket and there's two vehicles there's the first class coach mm-hmm. and there's the third class there's, one has got a roof and one, one doesn't have it so one of the things that people go and there you need that if you want to market and get extract price um, you you need to have a differentiator because people say why why does a first class why I want a seat that's got much wider we all want the best we can but yeah it, you, but it's interesting the comparison between rail transport and airlines and I've had to do a lot of airline uh, going back to that working with lots of companies and stuff and there p- people will accept that I don't I'm not going to pay up to premium economy I'm not going to mm. pay but but then the other way they want to come back, the, the, and as I say, going back and working in the intercity market, so having a differentiator is really important because ultimately, and there was a stat way back in intercity days, that for every first-class ticket you sold, you needed to sell four standard. So actually, why was a first-class ticket more expensive? Because you bought the seat next to them. You bought the seat next to you because you wanted that space. Right. So, but again, we want to carry more people, want to brand, and ultimately, the, the infrastructure is actually our biggest constraint. So just... Going back to your example of as a, does the Jubilee weekend or as a bank holiday, uh, my current employer, we serve a, a seaside resort. So big demand, people, why aren't we putting things? And part of that is the trains, uh, they still call out the small stations in between and we don't have, it'd be great if we could erect 
super cheap temporary platforms and stuff yep. so that's okay so but going back to your thing about seats what, what are the things so i want a seat um there is a battle how wide it can be is a function of how wide the train is and that's a function of the victorian architecture that and tunnels so you can't make them wider or taller so let's just put that one to bed right here right now can we have double decker trains it might be in certain bits of the network but ultimately we'd have to do a lot of big tunneling so, so we no. can't have wider trains or taller trains because we have lots of Unless bridges, we build, or we build tunnels. A, we, we build a brand new railway like. So on the railway we, we have, yeah, it yeah. would be disproportionately expensive to heighten every tunnel, bridge, yeah. etc. Yeah. So you often hear people saying, well, can't they just can't they just have double-decker trains like in France? Or Well, if you want to Google this, listeners, you can Google some film of the, the trains that British Rail tried to build. They built a couple of double-deck trains. Yeah. For commuters into Waterloo, yeah, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And to interlock the upstairs and downstairs involved things like bits of ceiling where you had to duck in to fit underneath them and people's feet were sort of over a piece of ceiling yeah. that was over someone's nose virtually. There, are, There is a bit of historic film, if you Google it, it's, it's available online. Other search engines are available. So. And but you can see what the, the only way the that you can make a double-decker yeah. train it fit in Britain on the existing railway, you have a look what it's like and yeah. then say, we'll have more of those or yeah. not. And it's so. not just kind of go upstairs. It's no, kind so of can we go wide. longer? So yeah. actually, no, because the platform, you know, just stand at any station, yeah. two-track railway, very simple, and you go, well, if I want to make the trains wider, I need to move the tracks further apart. So mm-hmm. I start, and then you go, where's the end of the, where's the railway boundary? type yeah, thing yeah. so and it might be at the station you're at there's loads but go to the next station so on and so forth so, but, so that therefore means you have this tin can yep. that is you know the, the size that it is because that's the size that fits on the railway yep and over the past 30 some years yep more and more people have wanted to use the yep. railway and that's fantastic isn't Great. it we all love railways that's why we're here <laughs> they pay my wages they pay so. all our wages one way or another even yep. Tony's indirectly so. <laughs> um and so we want more of them. We love that they want to use it, but we need to fit more of them yeah. inside a confined space. So different people are different sizes. Indeed so, they are. So the official term is the 5th to 95th percentile, which used to be referred to as the 5th percentile female and 95th percentile male, but we don't do that anymore. We're, we're on the gender. Equality. We're on the gender bus. But even even that design everything if you do a, a cad model every portion so one of the, um is is fifth percentile so your hand is fifth percentile user nobody is people are tall in the donating mm. uh, that, that that um i think it's the tr transport research laboratory in Bracknell. yeah the sled the thing oh i was amazing that day i love that and i've got some fantastic pictures because in the driver community that's really important. So people talk about seats. The most important, and therefore the best seat in the house, is the one here. And the one people, at the front. And people are yeah. going, oh, how much did that seat cost? Or whatever. And it says, well, if you go up in the air and you're 35,000 feet in the air and you're sitting in a seat, the one who you want to have the most important seat is the person flying the plane. Yeah. And we're no different. So I talk about, what do I do? And I call it, I represent customer, customer or colleague. And that colleague could be somebody who's operating the train, yep. somebody who's looking after the train, somebody who's cleaning the train. That's what I do. So all those years... I mean, that's, that's their workplace, isn't yeah, it? All it those is. people you just mentioned, they go out to work for their shift and the train is their it's office the, yeah, for the, the day, well, isn't it? Well, it's their, it's their, their workplace. place of work. And like yeah. any of us, whether it's your home or your workplace, what you want is the best year. If a place is cold and dank, you, know, mm. you feel rubbish. So yeah. if we want these people to 
operate safely, smile at people, do it. Because people, t- one of the things is what makes the difference about, uh, of a trainer says it's actually it's service. That how you are yeah. treated, people make the magic happen. That's my phrase. Not contracts, it's people. So one of the things I'm very keen to do is that I work with the trade unions and, and that's been a challenge on our challenging because the everybody knows the industrial relations issue in the industry. But I give credit to both the trade unions that I work with and both the functional representatives and the health and safety representatives. And I was really pleased because I actually got invited not that long ago to speak at an ASLEF function at part of the House of Parliament. And what I was there to talk about is how important it is to engage with reps. And what I mean that by is representatives who are representative, not John or Mary or whoever who's the rep wants it for them. They are the representative. So because... Yeah. You've got that wide range of people to deal with. So, but going back to your the seat thing is people of different sizes, different shapes, and you're trying to design a seat ergonomically. So one of the things, and again, if you look at the way that cars, you know, have features like you would have an office chair, we've actually tried to design seats so that comfy sofa that you're know, a bit like what we're sitting on a bit now. So if I had to sit in this and try and work or or whatever mm-hmm. for three hours. This would actually be really uncomfortable. How people make contact. So if you're a big person, you will sink further into the seat. So that's one of the challenges. And if the more that contact forces you, you become warmer. If you, oh, that temperature, be- of and course. That, and, yeah. that be- and you become uncomfortable because mm. a lot of this is perception. Therefore, going back to really big, heavy person, they will sink. You need a firm cushion to stop them sitting on literally on the metal frame. But if you're very light and you've got a firm cushion... Becomes that won't a bit feel hard. very comfortable. Yeah. Yep. So there is a bit of one size. I wouldn't say one size fits nobody, but it is an optimization process. How tall should a seat be off the ground? So lots and lots of criticism, lots of seat gate. And one of the things that really, really, one of my bugbears is people say that seat looks uncomfortable. So they see pictures online or whatever of a sort of Pendolino refurb. I saw stuff going, oh, that's that looks a great seat. And another person says, no, that's a terrible seat. And you're like, going, mate, I've got no problem with people having an opinion. Only if they've sat in it. So, if well, you... I can tell you a story about your um, the new trains that you're working on at the moment, Robin, which yep. are yet to enter passenger service. You have a wonderful um, mock-up in Sheffield Station. We do. So I've gone through Sheffield Station several times at a similar time of the morning to change trains to get to Derby. And there's an old fella who sits on that seat for about, I don't know how long every morning, but yeah. he's, he's there every time I go through there. I don't know who he's waiting for. I don't know what he's doing, but he's sat there with his coffee, enjoying a lovely experience. In we think it's a great seat. seat. We, we evidently it's comfortable. The guy seems to love we're, it. We're, we're very proud of our seats, and we hope our customers and colleagues uh, will will do so. Or we put a lot of effort into it. But one of the things is that uh, people criticise the industry for not listening. And actually, uh, Rail Safety and Standards Board, RSSB, have done a lot of research to this. And in June this year, they produced a, a really, really important guidance note, which actually involved, I think it's the Furniture Industry Research Association or organisation, FIRO or FIRO or whatever. Lots and lots of seats, chairs, comfies. And again, back to the comfy sofa we're sat on today. So actually, it's involved the people. And yeah, because lots of seats on trains, but actually, there are far more seats in people's work, homes, whatever, and offices and whatever. So, so actually involving people who do seats, who do so, furniture. So two questions on that. One is, yes, you've said you need to 
to try it to know what yeah. you've got and, and don't just look at it when you're ordering yeah. it either and i can tell this story because it's way too far in the distance for anyone to worry now but for any of the one in the northwest of england who remembers the mersey rail pacer refurbs with the sheet seats that i think were just copied from the letter l from the, the shape of them Ooh. nobody from that i think from mersey rail to mersey travel had actually sat on one because I was with them when they went to see the first set completed at the Hunslet Barclay Works in Scotland. Come on. And they walked in and they all said, oh, it looks lovely. Then they all sat down and there was silence. And somebody said, how many of these have we ordered? <laughs> and, oh, that's not what you want to hear, And it was it? too late. And people will remember, you know, if you saw a, a yellow pacer coming you know, you knew what kind of seats you were going to get for quite a long time. And they were vertical. Yeah. So lesson one is you, you do need to try them, as you yeah. said. Try before but, you buy. But that yeah. other interesting lesson is don't ever put it out to public consultation and say, pick the favourite one from three, hear the winner, and then say, oh, well, we're going with number two anyway, which a few years ago happened Somebody in one part did. of England. Yeah. So don't tell your passengers, your customers, you could have this. If you like it, that's the one you'll get. And they say, well, thanks for your feedback, but we're... It's a really important. I think that's what the the guidance document is actually because that going back to that thing. How long do you sit in a seat? How long do you leave that yeah. seat on the station? How do you? How is your market? Because it's market research, not asking sort of like. Because again, I think people will go up, let's say, to that mock up, and the first things people do is put their hands touch it, touch yeah. it on the cushion. Yeah, is that the way you sit on a seat? It's the same with the bed. That's the classic. I always say is people Squidget. you go to beds are us or I, wherever you wherever you buy other bed suppliers are available, and the first thing you see is people go put their hand yeah. to it, and you like go no lie down on it. But going back to the seats and the perception, so perception is really really important. So the infamous ironing board seat, which was it started with the Thameslink project yeah. seven hundred mm. that GTR done, and again coined by I think. Perhaps one of your, your one of your ilk, Tony. Um, and as a result, it caught on. Yeah. And as a people, uh, and it became, I think they became an influencer, as I think would be the uh, the modern Ooh. parlance, uh, inversely. But that same seat is on a number of, so it's on the 700, it's on varieties of the 387, it's on the Gatwick Express, it's on uh, Northern's uh, Catholics, it's on the Hitachi 385. Interestingly, standard seat that's in the, what people, whether you call it IEP, AOX, IET, whatever, Azuma, that's the first class seat on the, mm-hmm. on, on the mm-hmm. 385, the wooden armrest. But even myself, I'd say, I've sat in 700s and I've sat in lots of those seats and I've sat in, and I think the, I've done Preston to York on the Blackpool service and that's a good two, two and a half hour service. I think it's a really good seat. But equally, there's definitely a different bit of cushioning and, and, mm. and how and difference between maquette and flat and how it feels. That's definitely an influence. But I've been on the Gatwick Express and I think that's a terrible seat. And it's the same seat, so even myself can You've be affected fallen for it as well. by perception. So there, there are a couple of things that I want to ask about. And it, and it takes me back to, I remember talking to Siemens years ago when they were preparing and designing the fleets that went to Southwestern trains. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the Strategic Rail Authority was involved and the government were involved very heavily. And they did things like they said, the trains have got to have this many seats. Yep. The, the minister yes. has decided they will have this many seats. And that still goes on. And, ah, mm. and the minister has decided what the legroom will be as well. Yep. 
and Siemens told me this great story because they fed into their cab machine. The leg room has got to be this, and it's got to be this many seats, and they pressed the button, and, and all the seats shot out the end of the vehicles. And, <laughs> and they had to, somebody had to go back to the SRN, to the minister, and say, you cannot have that many seats and that much leg room. So there will be compromises with it, which is partly where it began. And I think there's been a problem since that ministers, through the privatisation years, when a Secretary of State announced that he'd signed off a new train order, loved to say, and each train will have X extra seats. And probably it went beyond the point of reasonableness because we're hearing of companies now that are refurbing trains and taking a few out to spread them back out again. But the minister doesn't have to stand up and say, he's not going to stand up and say, and I'm delighted to tell you that each train will have 20 fewer seats. Whereas he could stand up and say, I'm delighted to say you'll have slightly more leg room in the way that they're being redone, but that, that's not how ministers work. Mm. So we got trapped a little bit, didn't we, in the politics of every train has got to be better than the others, but they measured it in terms of how many people you could get in rather than... Yeah, and, and it's, it's not not just ministers. It's it, you want People want a soundbite, so White Rose, when we took White Rose to Leeds, that was, a de- delivering, that was fundamentally delivering additional services. But the strap line was we're delivering 11,000 more seats, I think it was, quite a long time ago. Yeah. So, um, But the, the, the marketing um, thing, so the Rorsbrung Duke technique was we're delivering more services, more seats, more things. It's so good, it must be Christmas. So when we launched that service, <laughs> uh, so the advertising campaign was Christmas. And I remember on the old concourse, if for those who remember at King's Cross with the yeah. Solari mm. board and yeah. whatever, so visualise that. 35 Father Christmases at the beginning of May at two o'clock in the morning, all standing having their photograph taken because that image was used on posters by the road, on the back, on the seats, on the back of cabs. And on the launch train, we actually served Christmas dinner at the, I think it was spring bank holiday in May uh, 2002. We delivered that. So, but yes, but that's a really good example because one of the other things that people want is tables. So whether that's to put your, you know, there's your hen do, your stag do, put your beers, your Prosecco at six yes. o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, or, We've all been or, there. Or kids and you want the kids playing or you want your laptop out or, yeah. or whatever. And it's interesting that on the Interstate Express programme that I worked on for a long time, one of the things we had a, a, a sort of marketing lead at the company I worked for and they were very much like nobody's ever going to use tablets when... Nobody's ever going to use a laptop, so why are we bothering having a a, a big uh, seat-back table uh, on airline seats? And one of the things is if you travel on that train, it's got a pull-out thing because a lot of us still went, and I'll be, I want to, and people, you look today, there's still a lot of 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 laptops around. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and that that was a decision being made well over 10 years ago so even though technology itself has rapidly moved on so so that's the thing so again on our project one of the challenges we had between delivering a number of seats delivering a number of airlines because a fixed table comes with a base set of seats uh takes up a bit more space but people want that and one of the challenges is at certain times of day certain things particularly in the intercity market the profile of the customer varies so how do you uh, and i'll give yeah. you a little example on luggage how do we, how an innovative idea which came from from eurostar um but there but then people say well actually i don't want a bare table because it was perceived that certain people might feel uh whether female or male don't want to they actually they crave airline seats um because they do that it equally people don't necessarily want to 
sit opposite somebody and play footsie type thing. So, so different people want different things. So when somebody says, I want list their list of things, there'll be a person who wants completely the polar opposite. So that's, again, a challenge. And also the same customers don't want the same thing all the time. Yep. So I travel and sometimes want to be on my own because I'm working and yep. I'm traveling on my own and, and, you know, that's great. But then other times I'm... With I'm, on, I'm on the Hindu with my Prosecco and yeah. that's, you know, the, yeah. I don't really like Prosecco yeah. that much so. actually, but you know, my drink of choice. Bitter top. So, <laughs> um, but, 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 but again, trying to be a little bit more, and one of the ideas that, so one of the criticisms that was on the IP, on the Azumas, there were seats because the way the door, door system worked, the door went, slid into the saloon area. So there was a seat with no window and people went, oh, that's terrible. And I actually saw it as a marketing opportunity, recognising, I think that, I think it's 88 seats in a standard vehicle in, in the IP design. And I think this was, the luggage stack was opposite. So this was four seats. So this was less than 5% of the total seats. And they do generated a huge amount of angst and, and whatever. Um, now, what I said, and what's in some ways is, well, you say there's sometimes, so when there's a disruption, people go back to, what's the most thing? A seat. So they'll compromise. And some people, again, going back to that community, I've worked on East Coast for a long time, and we had commuters from Newark and Grantham, which was, uh, you know, an hour, an hour and ten, and they were getting on trains because they were work. We had to run trains because the city started at one point. It moved from it moved an hour earlier. So people were getting on, and what they wanted to do was literally get on the train and fall asleep, get that extra hour in bed. And we went, That's I went, that's a marketing opportunity. Some people will Ooh, go... Oh, it's the sleepy yeah, seat. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And also, if anybody travels it, it doesn't have a middle armrest. And the reason it doesn't have a middle armrest was the, the door pocket now is the vehicle at that point. And then you went, there's the there's the seat of love. Oh. So, so the canoe the canoodling seat. This is just think yeah, a little yeah. bit that goes back to but some people, it is horrific because they want to look out the window. And again, seats aligning with windows, that's another mm. thing. Go on any form of public transport and watch what the majority of people are doing. They are staring into their device or they're reading a book or whatever. So again, the example, must line seats up with windows, must have a window. Then you go, going back to, well, that person wants to work, get their laptop out. One of the things is, oh, there's now lights bill. I want to put a blind up. So do we have blinds? Do we have curtains? So one of the things on, on that project was... We will put window blinds, as it turned out, at every seat. Part of that was to, a lot of the design is to lifelong, that train should last 35, 40 years, because that's what we tend to design trains still for. So the interior change, and what we were trying to do is to minimise the, well, the DFT's object, one of it was to minimise the level of change. So when change comes, the market changes, you want more first, you want less first, you want to take it, it was that level, you don't strip the entire vehicle mm. out so it was a it was very much trying to look at life lifelong cost on that but but yes so an interesting question might be for people to consider i've just booked a, a ferry trip and the seating plan for where i was booking seats showed where the windows were Absolutely. with relation to the seats mm. so i could decide and, and that and that I, isn't on the train plan is it at the moment on, uh, on many d- it doesn't actually show you that the seats where you might have a bit of a yeah but there is no reason why we shouldn't so going yeah. back to some people want this, some people want that, and actually lots of those choices are available. We just don't We, just don't we don't make it easy for people to make that choice, so yeah. no wonder, and very understandably, they get frustrated. Address what is frustrating the person. They want a seat with a window. Yeah. They don't want a seat with a... They want a bed, such and such. We just need to make that easier. Yeah. Mm. So. And, and I confess, I have also bought, uh, booked 
the seats with no window because it's brilliant if you're editing photos when you've been to an event and you're taking oh. photos because you've got no light shining in. And so, so I have so deliberately done it as well. So, so, so again, people book. See, I'm, I am fiftieth percentile. I am, I am Mr. Average. Um, <laughs> but if you've got if you've got long legs, people book the aisle seat. If you go on aircraft, people book the aisle seat because they they go. That's how I gain leg room because I stick my legs into the aisle. But when the crew come down to serve, then it's all oh, quick. You get you're on the ankle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but also it makes it difficult. So anybody go and look at two two five on the east coast, big red sofa seats, and see how many people's legs are in the in the aisle. Because again, a bit of a myth: there's over an inch more, uh, or uh, what's that in new minute? Yeah, twenty five to thirty mil per leg room. That's a fact. Luggage space. There's 50% more luggage space on that compared to, per passenger compared to that. And also that luggage space is at seat. Whereas on the 225, there was the big van. And similarly on HST on Great Western, uh, where I also worked, quite a lot of the time that van was off the platform. And if you were going to Devon and Cornwall, so actually one of the things was to try and bring the luggage. And the most important thing is I want to see my luggage. Because the last thing I want to do is to have some... Going for a walk. So did we just do some myth-busting there? I think we did. Oh, I think we did and some I've still, well, I've still got two questions to throw in, there. but we well, are Let's bust. just highlight the myth-busting there for a so, minute. Yeah. So there is 25mm extra oh, leg more room. Than, more, than, more than, I think, leg room compared to a like-for-like comparison. With a 225. Yeah, so one of the things, for instance, when we did the mock-up, because mm. we had the priority seat, and priority seats is you have more leg, more space for people with restricted mobility, people sat in the normal seats and they went is this the priority seat next question so, tony so just out of interest because going back to that thing that mersey rail found uh, mersey travel found with their new seats that were vertical backs that there has been a tendency which we've we've sort of moved back from a little bit to have the thing i found most uncomfortable isn't the cushion it's the, the verticalness yeah. of the seat yeah i went to the um to the big grand launch of avanti and their consultants were there saying, when we refurbished the Pendolinos, we've done some market research and we found the optimum angle of seats back that people like is. And people will notice that the, the change from the standard class seats, as in the old Pendolinos, to the new ones, which is also the same seat mm. on Lumo, the seat reclines just slightly more. Mm-hmm. And and I find yeah. it, it could do it for me a couple more degrees, but it is more comfortable. So... It's, it's not just the cushion itself, it's the actual yeah, angle. Just, and part of that verticalness, again, was because people were trying to squeeze an extra row of seats in, was it, at some point, and they realised yeah. it's better. Yeah. So, again, going back to the little, really quick things, try and get contour in the headrest. If you're really tall, those contours now stick in your shoulder blades. If you're tall, the, the, the difference between basically your backside, that's so what we, we everybody refers to as leg room. There's a proper term, which I can't remember where it is, but basically... The base of your spine, your backside to your knee, that bit under there. If you're short, your back won't go into it because if you do that, your mm-hmm. legs will stick out. So, so those are all, all challenges. So, and I was just going to say my apologies to a good friend from Irish Rail who came over to travel around the UK a few weeks ago, and that is luggage nicked or part of his luggage. Nicked. So that is, is the thing, so, as you were saying, so, so pe- things, people so need things, to see. So things like putting putting clear clear ways in 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 luggage space. So. One of the things is extra uh, supports were put in the overhead racks part way to to stop. If you have, unfortunately, have a crash, stuff accelerates and it's designed so it doesn't suddenly that that suitcase becomes a missile. And it's it's designed, if you look at them, you'll see them. It's not just to hold the 
back up it's to actually stop that thing right. whizzing down the the thing and and basically unfortunately if it's heavy enough it will do some serious damage to to, yeah. to do that and that's a learn that was applied in the uk from from crashworthiness so and even some further things are happening in that in, in that area so i think to go back to my luggage thing and and flexibility so i saw it a long time ago in eurostar where they put effectively a cover and lner did this when it became LNER and they wanted that, that seat and they've taken it out subsequently and put a, a stack in, which for their market and the fest, the fringe festival is on. So massive demand on, on that thing. So actually they've probably got enough demand, but people are traveling. They also want the seat to go to the festival as well. So those are also interesting content. But there they put that over and it says, place your luggage here. So going back to that market change, one of the ideas that I had was actually, do we store those on board and recognising we can reserve those seats, take mm-hmm. them out of use, mm-hmm. so we can flex. So when that train is being a commuter train, you know, it's the six o'clock from Newark, Grantham into King's Cross, but it's going to work the 10 o'clock or whatever to Edinburgh, which is now leisure, that seat can be converted, that could have been converted into, into luggage space, work that, and then it's going to be, Actually, it's now going to be a commuter service out of Newcastle down to York, get the bag back off. So there's different ways of thinking flexibility. If only we could uh, perhaps do that and take some flex seats out in and out. To, yeah. And some of the, the concept is the tip down seat. Yeah. So the fold down seat yeah. and the bike storage area. Is it a bike storage area? Boogies, push chairs. Well, okay. the other thing yeah. we were talking, actually, we were talking about it today at AOX Ops user group. So we have a user group and, and in the operating world. There have been lots of them for the fleet world for a long time. There's a 15X and 170, but we've developed this, particularly with modern trains, with modern technology and all its quirkiness, and how do we how do we do that? But one of the things was reflecting on the Lumo incident where luggage got thrown significantly, and one of the things there was, actually, should we should we go down the lines of bins like you have on an aircraft? Because it's the same type of luggage. Oh, so a closed-down door. Closed down, so yeah. to stop okay. things, that's ultimate. But then the opposite was, just wait to see your dwell times go up. Dwell times go up. We've reduced capacity. We're not carrying as many people. So it's about priorities, isn't it's, it? It's a, it's a, it's an optimi- It's an optimization. Go back to a train interior, seats, tables, toilets, bins. It's all about optimization. There is no perfect solution, but also it needs to reflect the operating environment. So again, I've done the Elizabeth Line Crossrail a lot of time. I think that's a fantastic train. I've, I've had the opportunity to travel on the new 777 here in uh, so on Merseyside. And people have also said, oh, these seats are really firm. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's an excellent seat for the environment. Yeah. I've been, I've had an opportunity to travel on the new Metro train, considering that's a 50, <laughs> that's a quantum leap in there. Yeah. But that's an excellent thing. So travelling on one train and saying, this seat is hard, or I haven't got enough this, or I haven't got that. Well, what is the environment? What is the market you're in? But you just mentioned in your roundup there, toilets, and uh, you said optimum solution. Tell us your your toilet fact. Factoid. 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 Yeah. factoid so, <laughs> so, as I said, I've done eight train designs, and I, I, I try and represent the user. And one of the things you have to try and decide is um, tank capacities. So fuel, that's easy, because they'll say it uses so many litres per mile or kilometre. What's your planned operating range and all that carry on? Washer bottles, sanders, still, how many says toilets? So how Ooh. big should the waste tank be? So you can do the freshwater tank, modern toilet, aircraft, train, uh, coach, vacuum-based. So when you flush the toilet on a, a vacuum train, 
How much water do you think it uses? Oh my goodness, I've no idea, Robin. Can of Coke. It's 0.3 of a typically they're Is point that three. All? Yeah. Per flush. Per, per flush. Yeah. And then some some really clever stuff. So so on the the Caffleet that Transpennine operates, the sink water goes into it, 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 re- it, re- it recycles. So, yeah, yeah. So it's because the joys of grey water, black water. So somebody said, is the tank going to be big enough? So you go, well, I know how much water's in the header tank and I know how much you get per flush, how much is added. So I had the job of verifying whether this, the toilet range was that so. Oh. You, didn't I, have to, you didn't have to monitor your performance for several uh, months and measure it, did you? Tell no. us you didn't. But so, um, so many variables, but, though. So, how many football yeah. fans? How many Hindus? So, how yeah. many... so the, the little, little secret, little, yeah. little reveal. So the way you did it was not about that. It was how, how much would the toilet be in use? Because basically you were saying, right, I get so many flushes... And then you work out the operational hours, and it's not just the train starting and the, the beginning, going into service at the beginning of the day. How long is your turnaround? So basically, how long is the train actually moving? So the opportunity to go to the loo. And then it's to say, right, actually, if you take a typical intercity operating day, which I'd say normally, say, 6 in the morning to 2200-ish, and not every train does that, whatever. So that's, let's do the math, 6. So that's about 16-hour window. It's not moving up six down. So it's if it's doing 25-minute turnarounds, 15-minute, you take all that bit off and you get down to about 12 hours. And then it's like, right, if I get so many flushes, how many things, how often is the toilet busy? And I think we worked out something like it would, every toilet would be occupied all the time for three minutes. So going back to just, and every that's an entire toilet train. would be occupied all the time for three minutes. Yeah. And that's three minutes in out. So that's that's no, that's instant swap type thing. And we went, and one of those things you just went, yeah, that's about right. Because you went just if you sit in, visualize yourself sitting, waiting to the low, looking at the, the um, the toilet engaged light at the end of the saloon. How often is that sort of flashing? It would effectively be like a strobe light. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, plug for plug for plug for our new trains. Uh, on our new trains, one of the frustrating thing is. You don't necessarily get a toilet in every vehicle or whatever, and some trains do it. Actually, Mm. might be just one train toilet per thing. Is am I going to get in my seat and and queue outside the the loo, as it were? So you're looking for that indicator. So on our new train, we've got new displays, lovely TFT LCD ones, and what we do is that we display the toilet status throughout the entire train. Other other Thameslink I think does this. Yeah, Thameslink does that. But then we got down to and again. What happens when the toilet isn't working? It's out of use. Again, traditionally, you put that terrible cross yeah. on it and you stand there as a customer and you swear, whatever. And what we done, because somebody said, oh, we'll do that. And what we do is it disappears. Ah, so it is not an option. So we don't communicate our failures. So hopefully we won't use that very often. But it was just a little, a little mm. different. Again, perception is the most frustrating thing. And having been a previous customer and employee of Transpennine Express on the 185 with its 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 toilets and that's got a very small oh, toilet yeah. tank that that sort of flashing red light of frustration which yeah. uh, well that was the the when I moved over from Network Rail it was to work at Transpennine Express and I remember um my shock at spending 
quite so much of my time talking about toilets. Yeah. I never envisaged that. And it wasn't actually part of my job, but it was just such a focus because it had become a metric for that franchise because, as, as Robin just no. said, the 185s were notorious for toilets locked out of use. It was, and it has a toilet yeah. tiny waste tank. So. Tiny waste tank. So. And lots of football fans. Yeah, so... Oh yes, oh yes. We have a how long we do have a, an alert if the toilet is occupied for more than a period of time. Oh my goodness, there's a time there's, limit. There's a klaxon goes throughout the train, and <laughs> really? a, an announcement. Go, Everybody no, knows. No, it's, yeah, so so it's no toilets on trains. That's for a different. If you want well, that, might be back. Probably not after that. I think we should do a special because we also need to talk to the people who do the cleaning out at the end and find the sort of things that they find found the in there. False yeah. teeth. I mean, yeah. so we we've got three. Quick fire questions. Okay then, Robin. What is your favourite railway journey? Ooh. Uh, you can go international uh, if you want. Actually, I would say it was very recently Caledonian Sleeper, new one. Absolutely loved it. Went there and back to Fort William. Breakfast and dinner over Rannockmore, amazing. Very nice. What is your favourite station? Again, you can go international if you choose. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. I think that's easy. St Pancras, St Pancras International. Oh. It's beautiful, gorgeous, and we will make it even more gorgeous because we will take diesel trains out of there, and we will have our lovely bi mode in electric mode there. Um, finally, building on the topic of a lot of our conversation today, what has been your favourite railway job? Uh, so far, I should say, because yeah, so it's not yeah. finished yet. I would say appearing in Harry Potter. Good uh-huh. answer. When I was at GNR, um, I did three Harry Potter movies, including the first one. How exciting! So, and uh, my mother, no longer with us, but even she wouldn't recognise. There was a real, we call it the long shot in the movie <laughs> business. Um, so there was like 120 extras and wandering down. So I'm just wandering down the platform. And that seems like a, a lovely um, time to end our time with you, Robin. Thank you very much for being our first guest. That's Thank all right. You. You'll be back. Yes. <laughs> As I say, thank well, you for having me on your podcast. Thank you. That's, that was well, quite amazing. Yes. What, yes. a great, what a great chat with Robin. And I, I feel like there's another episode coming up with Robin further Ooh. down the line. I think, uh, yes, the, we, we haven't explored a lot yet, really, have we? So there's there's, yeah. there's plenty to go. But Do you know what? I think one of the main things that came across from our chat with Robin, though, was that about the railway is really all about trade-offs and balance of risk, which oh. I knew anyway from, from my experience. But I think he really brought that out in terms of like these choices that can seem really straightforward and, and maybe could seem straightforward to passengers that the that we're always making the wrong decisions and actually when you unpack it a bit it's like these aren't straightforward decisions binary decisions they're trade-offs aren't they and, you know you can yeah. have more seats but maybe that means you need less leg room or you have less luggage room or fewer toilets you can have more toilets but then maybe that means you have fewer seats you know and when you work it through like that somebody has to make those tough yeah. choices somewhere down the line i you know i had never thought about the different weights of passengers making yeah. so much difference to whether the seat feels squishy or not so you know it's it's just one of those things that is behind the scenes and is going yeah. on and all the armchair experts that could have done it better yeah it is a very hard system of making as many people happy as possible and nobody is going to come up with the perfect solution that will make everybody happy and I suspect if we went to any railway in the world even the most luxurious ones where people pay a fortune to have absolutely fantastic treatment there's still something on there that people are going to say that wasn't quite right for me yeah because it's so subjective isn't it yeah Yeah. Yeah. so hopefully 
we'll think of some more interesting things to cover if we decide we're going to do this again after after a successful pilot. So we will welcome emails giving us not only feedback on this, suggesting areas we could talk about. Can we get people in that, that will unpack some of the myths, uh, open up some of the yeah. closed doors uh, about the railways? Why don't all the trains run on time? You know, why, why aren't tickets half the price that they are? Whatever you want to know. Yeah, give us suggestions. You know, do you want to know about leaves on the line? Maybe not. Maybe you've heard that too many times. Do you want to know about more about trains? I think Robin did really well in explaining a lot about new trains there, but it's a whole world of of interesting stuff. What are people interested in? We'll we'll try and find stuff that's interesting and people who are interested to to explain it. Yeah, ideas welcomed. Oh, so the music started. That means we have to go before that's the news starts. All right. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for uh, we'll do the next pressing one. the buttons to the and, next and what one. have you. <laughs> We absolutely forgot that we didn't tell you how to get in touch with us. So we have an email address. It is... It's plines. So it's contact at plines.com. And we really do want you to get in touch. So that's contact at plines.com. We want to hear from you. Suggestions are welcome. Suggestions, questions, guests that you'd like us to try and badger to be on. Um, things that you've always wondered about. Anything. Just get in touch. Excellent. We'll talk to you on the next episode. <laughs>